You're listening to the Gate Charlotte Podcast. Our mission is to reach people, release heaven, and restore culture, sharing in the love of Jesus and all we do. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Well, the uh, Bassett's going to go back and forth as we do that. Uh, and so I just want to say hello. Some of you, you know, maybe have been coming for a while and, and, and know me a little bit. Some of you may not. And, uh, and so let me introduce myself a little bit. Uh, my name is David. And uh, on Thursday nights, we have our uh, Zoom labs that have been going on for the last couple of weeks. Uh, this last week, I had been preparing all afternoon, uh, writing out notes for it. Um, it was coming to be about 5.45. I'd sent out the notes, uh, prepared for the next couple of weeks. I, I love this lab that we're doing. It's on spiritual disciplines, which is helping to cultivate our desires that lead us to a revelation of God and hosting his presence. It, it's, it's something I love to do. And I went to go pick up uh, one of my daughters from basketball, and they were a little late getting out. And so I'm just hanging out, listening to some songs, and, and my mind begins to wonder. She comes in, and I need to go pick up a prescription. It's running a little bit late. We talk, and my mind begins to wonder. And we get home, and Elizabeth has prepared a meal, and she's like, hey, you know, I, I thought you'd be here a little bit ago. Well, let's eat. And we start to enjoy the meal, and it just keeps on enjoying. <laughs> it goes to 7.30, and I, uh, I get out of the, uh, the, the meal, and I go and check my phone, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting text messages from people. Are we not supposed to be meeting at 7 o'clock? <laughs> 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 so that's part of who I am, and I'm going to speak today about Jesus. I'm going to point to him. <laughs> so, uh, if, uh, <laughs> so if some of you that, hey, you know, uh, may have kids, we've got five daughters at home, and, and uh, you know, we, we try to stay focused. We, we are a, a focused, disciplined people. We, we, we are called to, to live with great dignity before others, and, and so it's very important for us to stay focused. And yet sometimes, because of life, you know, we just, we just kind of get off. <laughs> so uh, today, if you wouldn't mind, uh, open it up to John chapter 8 in your scriptures. Uh, we're going to look at uh, a passage that is um, it's one of the more familiar, maybe after some time. It's a woman called an adultery. Um, I'm going to do quite a bit of uh, background on this, so it's going to take me some time to get to it, and, uh, and that's going to be uh, necessary for a lot of reasons. So whenever we talk about Jesus, there's some things that uh, are helpful for us as, um, as people, as, as daughters and sons. There's things, things that are helpful for us just as human beings to know like, how we approach Jesus. So... Um, right from the very beginning, we are created in, in God's image. Uh, we are called to uh, help rule and represent God, help rule over the earth and represent God in the earth, everywhere we go. And that's our, that's our job. Adam and Eve, they were created to be priests and to bring this garden that was called Eden. Eden is the word delight in the Hebrew. This place of delight that was made uh, out of chaos, so that this, this chaos uh, you see in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 uh, was, was existence until God brought order and beauty and began to create a garden of delight. And in that garden, he planted uh, Adam and Eve. And he asked them to go from this place of delight and spread this delight 
to the rest of the cosmos, to the rest of the entire world. The, the, the whole planet was not Eden. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, there was a place, in, 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 uh, there was a garden, and in, in the middle of it was, was Eden, or sorry, there was a place called Eden, and in the middle of it was a garden. And so it, we were planted to help take this model of God's creation, uh, bringing chaos, uh, sorry, uh, bringing order and beauty out of chaos. That was our job as, as priests. And so, you know, if you could have imagined what it may have been like if there wasn't a fall, it would have been the gradual overcoming of all chaos over the whole world and eventually the whole cosmos by Adam and Eve and their descendants over the course of time to create this beautiful oasis that echoed and mirrored heaven itself, all in communion with God. And that was, that's our job. That's who we were meant to be. And, and the center of it was this garden, and in it, dwelt the very presence of God himself. There was a, a synthesis, a, a full immersion of all of who God is in this place called delight. And if anyone would want to know who God is or was, they would simply go to Eden. They would go there and see him. They would see him also through Adam and Eve. When that fell and that didn't happen, God didn't want us to be without. And so in time, he created a temple and a temple system. We see it through Moses, where Moses created a tabernacle that was the very image of what he saw uh, as a shadow, anyway, of what he saw in heaven when God took him up to that place. And so Moses created this temple, this tabernacle, and that would be the place where God would dwell with man, where his presence was. And the building of the temple, the actual physical building of it, was just like all the other temples in the ancient Near East culture. You know, it had a you know, rectangular look at times, or square look, and then in the middle of it was the Holy of Holies. And in all those temples, every single one of them had in the middle of it a large statue of some type. And that statue was their representation of their idea of God. So it may have been a, you know, a, a bull. Uh, it may have been you know, some hundred-armed monkey. You know, it, it, whatever it was, uh, they, they filled the temples. And there's this principle that we see in uh, Psalms 115 that whatever it is that we worship, we become like. We become like. And, and so these gods of this time, and these gods are still around today, uh, they would have the people, or the people would, you know, and, and maybe imitation of them, try to create in their own image or in their own hands uh, what these gods are like, and they would worship, and then they would become like them. And as a result of that, like the people of Israel created this, this bull out of gold, you know, because they think that maybe that's what God looked like. And as a result, they became like this, this created idol. They, they had eyes but couldn't see. They had ears but couldn't hear. They had a neck that became stiff that couldn't even acknowledge and look up to God after some time. They became like what they worshipped. So God had designed the temple when he gave it to Moses uh, to have in the very center, nothing. Nothing at all. There was his presence that was there, and we have no idea. If it was a cloud, that's one description, but you'd walk in that temple that the priest actually would once a year, and, and, and he would be in the presence of God Almighty, uh, but it wasn't an image that was in the center of this place. It was, it was empty. And I would say that it was being reserved. In the very beginning, you and I inhabited with God the center of God's temple in Eden. You and I were meant to rule and represent the image of God like an idol, the same word there, 
to the rest of creation and creating beauty out of chaos. Once we left Eden, from that point forward, the temple was empty and remained empty, or I would say it remained reserved for a time. God's presence would dwell in the middle of the temple, but it hadn't taken up any form yet because the heart of man was wicked and unable to be deceived or unable to be deciphered, so it was always deceptive. And, and so therefore, there was, there was a, a lack of communion in the covenant that we had with Moses and with God. And that's why Hebrews will tell us that this covenant was at, at fault. There was a fault in the covenant. The, the fault wasn't with the covenant itself. The fault was with us. We were not like God. Our hearts were, were not like his. And so it was that God's temple, which from the very beginning was meant to be a place of synthesis and immersion and union with God and man, where we represented God, where we were the ones that were in this temple with God, represented him because we were made in his image, like him, who walked around with us. For a time being, had a temple that there was nothing in it except for the presence. Until we see when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, there was a prophecy of Ezekiel that he would come in or that God would come back into the temple to the east gate. And so we see in this passage, in John chapter 8, Jesus was hanging out on the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And like he would do many times, he would stay over in that area and then he would come into Jerusalem and come into the temple from that eastern side. And so, not trying to get technical, for all of you guys that, like me, like to nerd out in the Bible, look it up yourself. <laughs> Jesus came into and always would on the eastern side, just like Ezekiel prophesied that one day the presence of God would come back into the temple. And when Jesus did, he was bringing the presence of God back into the temple. The place reserved for an image in the temple, Jesus was coming now to fulfill. So wherever Jesus is in the scriptures as you're looking at him, you're looking at the representation of God. You're looking at the second Adam. You're looking at who man was supposed to be, being returned, restored, reimagined, like it was always supposed to be to begin with. There had been this vacancy for hundreds of years, thousands of years, of what it was that God and man together were supposed to be like. And that vacancy was represented through the emptiness of the temple, except through the presence. But nonetheless, there was nothing made that was there to fill it until Jesus came and filled in that place. And so we, as all humanity, for all time, we've been waiting to look for the one that is supposed to help us to see ourselves as we are, and God as who he is, because he is representing God to us. And then we are learning who we are by looking at Jesus. Because as Jesus is, so are we in the world as the scriptures tell us. As Jesus is and as Jesus has been sent, so are we sent. Just as Jesus was sent into the world to help bring order and beauty out of chaos, so are we. And he does it outside the temple, most often. In this passage I'm going to get to, he does it inside the temple. But before I get to that, what Adam and Eve were meant to do was to take the temple and go out and bring beauty, bring life, cultivate life. You know, where there may have been Weeds and brambles where there may have been, you know, sagebrush or, I don't know, dry grounds, that kind of stuff. He was meant to bring rivers. He was made to bring seeds. They, like, Adam was meant to create a cultivation of beauty and life and, and astonishing 
culture and creativity. And so when we see Jesus outside of the temple doing what he did, he was there representing what we were always meant to be doing. And so we see him healing lepers. We see him taking those lepers who were once cast off from culture and society and bring them back into the temple. There was a passage where Jesus had healed the leper. I think AJ had preached on it a couple weeks ago. And then Jesus said, now go show yourself to the priests to, to validate that you are included back into community. That the priests were supposed to be the ones that were going out into the community to find where there was those who were not in community and bring them in. They were meant to be a light to the whole world. They were meant to go out to the far reaches of the world and to bring in those who were the least and last, lost, and to help them understand their own inner beauty and what they were made to with order. And this is the, the, the priesthood was, was meant to be this, to exist outside, to meant to, to bring these things of Eden delight everywhere that we went and everywhere that mankind went. And the priesthood had completely failed in that. They had become internalized. They had become a hoarding of their power. They, they had become uh, so you know, self-centered that they uh, began to even deem God himself a threat to them, as we see through the life of Jesus. So when we read scripture, when we read a story and passage about Jesus, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Look at who you are to be in this temple. When, when you look at and, and read the words of Jesus, do so with the anticipation of a longing in your heart. Do so with, with an answer to the longing in your heart, an anticipation of that answered longing being there with Jesus. Do so knowing that as you read about Jesus, you'll find yourself. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that we don't yet fully know who we are, and, and we won't decide of his return. But when he does return, we will see him as he is, and we will know who we are as a result. Because we see him as he is, we know who we are. And so that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, now we who no longer look at, you know, stone tablets for our identity that has been removed, that has been broken off of us. Now, according to the Spirit, we can look at Jesus face to face as through a mirror and understand our identity. That's why through worshiping Jesus, we become who we are because in worshiping Jesus, we, 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 are, we, we reveal who he is. We are revealed as who he is. And vice versa, there's language that I can't describe, obviously, with that. As we see him who he is, we become like him. And so as you all are worshiping this morning, um, as, as God is your delight, you are being transformed. You are a different person to some degree, uh, some glory now than you were an hour ago. That's what the word of God says. You have become more like Jesus through your participation in active worship this morning already. You have become weak in humbling yourself to acknowledge God as great. And with that greatness, he has given you of himself. And so when you read the scriptures, when we, when, we, when we open up the Bible and read about Jesus, do so with awe and wonder. Do so with great anticipation of discovering yourself. And in this passage in particular, you're going you're gonna to be challenged because you're going to see some elements that I'm going to get to of, of Jesus that, uh, especially in our context today, is unheard of. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's intimidating because when we see Jesus as he is, we, we oftentimes want to focus back in on ourselves. And so what Jordan read in Isaiah 6 this morning, when we see ourselves as, as we are in God's presence, we, we want to say, woe is me, I'm a, I'm a man or woman, I'm, I'm unclean lips, I can't do this, there's no way I could possibly be like you, God, and we want to shrink back and go away. And then he comes to us and touches our lips with fire. He comes to us and touches our heart. He creates within us a new heart. 
that's no longer deceptive. Uh, he gives us a new mind that, that's no longer you know, twisted. And we, are, we have a heart and a spirit that's now right, that's just like his. And so when you come alive in the presence of Jesus, take confidence that that's real, that that's who you really are. Don't doubt that any longer. Don't doubt your desires. Don't doubt your thoughts when you're in the presence of God. That's who you really are. This whole world is trying to smear and confuse and smoke and mirrors and all that stuff to try to get you to see who you're not. When you're in the presence of God, that's who you are. And you see him as he is, that's who you are. And take that away for forever and grow in confidence in this as a body. And so here in John chapter 8, we see a passage that is a little bit on the uh, controversial side because it, it's not actually a story that originated in the gospel of John. And so this is one of the things I love about church history and getting into the technical details of Scripture itself and its reliability is that you come into contact with thousands of years of study of these words to see the validity of them and the strength of them on a purely technical basis, aside from the very fact that they bear witness when we, when we listen to it of our own spirit. But in this passage itself, this story throughout church history has been acknowledged as a true story that Jesus of, of his life. It's one that is consistent with his character, and it's one that a lot in the early church knew of, but not necessarily placed in John. No one knew of it as, as being in John. But at some point, someone had the story, and they're like, where should we put it? And they're like, all right, well, let's put it here in John. I'm being a little, little facetious. It, it seems like it's the writings of Luke, honestly, if I'm uh, just observing it. But nonetheless, it is here. It's attested to. You can maybe see in your, your text liners that this text itself, uh, you know, you know it had some manuscripts that would place it in different places. But nonetheless, it's a true story of Jesus, and we're going to look into it. So it really starts at the very end of uh, chapter 7 in some manuscripts, but chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Again, that's east of... Jerusalem, uh, as Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, they were, they were sent east of Eden. The presence of God, when it left the temple, went east, and then it came back from the east. At dawn, he went to the temple complex again. All the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And so it's, it's very important in this picture to, uh, to see yourself uh, in this, to, to imagine it. And so you, know, you guys are welcome to close your eyes, take a nap if you want to, but close your eyes if you want to, and, and imagine yourself... In this, in this scene where Jesus is sitting down and teaching the, pe the people in the temple. And in this culture, in this time, it was common for the rabbis or the you know, religious leaders to hold court, so to speak. They would, they would teach the people in the temple. The people would come and learn about God in the temple itself. Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a religious leader acknowledged by the temple. And yet he was coming and he was teaching in the temple. And so that would be like me hanging out here and, you know, I'm a pastor at the gate and, uh, you know, you are my flock, so to speak. Uh, you know, and, and, and so I, I feel a sense of, you know, responsibility and, uh, you know, and, and desire to, to serve. Um, it'd be like someone coming in and, and sitting over here and, and begin teaching, you know, in and, and, and a service. And, and I would feel a little odd about that. <laughs> um, and, and, but it's a, it's a person, in this case of Jesus, who is known in that time as, uh, you know, this maybe is his third year of ministry, that, that this is the miracle worker. This is the one who is, uh, you know, healing the lepers and bringing them back into culture. 
Uh, this is the one who's healing Mary Magdalene and pronouncing her forgiven of all the things that she had been doing with uh, the, the prostitution and whatever else. And, and so he was known as the merciful one, too. And he was forgiving sins, and that's scandalous because if I was a religious leader, I, I like to be the one that could pronounce whether or not a person is forgiven by how much they give or like how much they sacrifice and that kind of stuff. And, and I know the law better than this guy. Who, just, who, who are you to forgive sins? And so there's this automatic controversy that Jesus brings just by him being there. In addition to that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the men of that culture in particular, uh, they would see themselves through what was an honor and shame-based lens or culture, meaning that uh, how you all would relate to one another, especially the men, was based on how much that person had of honor, how much honor that person walked in. Was this person seen as, as someone important based on their skills, based on their intellect, based on how sacrificial, based on how loud their prayers were, whatever it was? And, and so their, their culture was ordered based on honor. If someone had done something wrong and they were dishonored, they may have been completely shunned from culture. They may not have been allowed around on certain times of the day, for instance. And that culture was, was organized based on honor. It's completely different than our culture. You know, their, their culture literally like rose and fell almost daily based on the activities and, and the worthiness of people to receive honor. And so what would happen is that there would be these little showdowns where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would, they would go in the temple and some would proclaim a truth. Like uh, the Pharisee would say, oh, you know, there is eternal life after death. And a Sadducee would come in who didn't believe in that kind of thing and say, absolutely not. There's no eternal life. And then they would have their, their showdown. They would argue scripture. They would maybe attack one another at some point. And whoever had the best argument would win. And everyone would say, this man is honored. You know? And then they would walk away celebrating the winner. And the loser was dejected and disgraced and would now experience some level of shame. And, and that was normal. It was this almost like vitriolic. And if you can think of like, you know, today we talk about toxic masculinity. This was a very toxic masculine culture that would do these kind of things. And so it was, that was a normal thing. And, and, and so the rise and fall of men and families and that kind of stuff would, would happen based on these, these showdowns. That's a little bit of the backdrop of that. We also have a little bit of the backdrop of this. You know, Jesus coming in and, and having some mini showdowns before this. Uh, you know, in little side towns and, and, and little side places along in Galilee. These, like, not quite as important, you know, these almost like backwater places where, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like you've seen, like Luke and other places, would challenge Jesus. And the crowds would gather around. And these crowds are, are folks like, you know, like me and you. We're, we're wondering which way is up and which way is down. We've probably heard in this culture at this time the, about the Pharisees, the ones that are set apart, the, the holy ones, and they hold to, a, you know, for the most part, a pretty strict idea of the law. And you know, there, there's, there's ideas in the law that might be kind of scary, like if, if I accidentally wore a shirt, I think this is 100% cotton, but what if I mixed it with linen? I, I couldn't walk outside because that would be shameful for me, and I'd, I'd have to get upset with my wife because she didn't buy me the right thing because I don't buy my own clothes often. And it would be this kind of like tense idea, like, you know, if... If I was on the Sabbath day and, uh, and I was thirsty and, and maybe didn't have any water because I, I, you know, I forgot to do my duty because I had five daughters and, you know, things happen and, you know, tasks get left behind and, like, all oh, junk. And I didn't pump my water. And, and on Sunday, I'm thirsty and I don't have water, but I, I go to, like, pump. I'm going to be nervous because if my neighbor looks and sees me, they might think that I'm doing work on the Sabbath. 
And that's a no-no. So then I won't be elected back into you know, community life until I repent and sacrifice. And goodness, you know, it was, it was a pretty intense you know, idea of legalism and law. And so the, the crowds may have been wondering, well, this is the way to live, so we've got to do it. And they're, they're trying to encourage one another. Or maybe you know, there's others that probably are more like me that are like, forget about it. It's fine. Just do it anyway. You're going to be fine. God's great. He's big. You know? But maybe get a little bit too lax at times and, and a little bit too merciful and things get sloppy. You know? Who knows? But, but in the crowd, there's all these folks that are there. There's the justice people and there's the mercy people. And they're just wondering which one's which. You know, is, is Jesus, you know, is he going to be one that, you know, as, as this new lawgiver like Moses, is he going to be one who declares mercy? What's, is he going to destroy Rome? We just don't know. And whenever there would be these showdowns, part of what would happen is that the crowds would go home and they would take notes, they would like read the paper about it, and then they would discuss in their family, and then they would set the course of their life based on these little honor-shame showdowns. So it was a big deal. It, it, was, it was not just the entertainment of the day, because that would be pretty entertaining to sit and watch these things as they happen all the time, <laughs> but it was also like setting culture. So that's a bit of the background here. Yeah. So Jesus sits down and he teaches them. Again, by sitting down and teaching them, he's creating controversy. You know, so, uh, you know, Jesus isn't just some, like, passive, mamby-pamby teacher. He knew what he was doing. <clears throat> He's creating conflict. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Making her stand in the center. <clears throat> Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act, in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. All right, so let's, let's look into this. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. So in order for there to have been a trial of any kind, in this case, there was a woman caught in adultery, there had to have been two witnesses. How are there going to be two witnesses to this? <laughs> Unless something's being set up here. So there's a little bit of a, of a premeditation that's going on here. And where's the guy? So part of the law also states that this woman should be stoned. And to get more specific in the, the Jewish writings that we have from the past, there were three types of situations that would happen like this. And this, these are all situations really explained clearly in the Mishnah and other places. If the age of the woman here is really important, if this woman is younger than 12, which was, again, something they stipulate, there would be no punishment toward her. So that was, that was there, that was legitimate. If this woman was married in over 20 years and a half, Instead of being stoned, they would be merciful and strangle her instead. This is legitimately their culture at the time. If she's betrothed or married, in this case, the, the scholars tend to agree that she was married, then in between the ages of 12 and 20 and a half, she'd be stoned. This is their culture. This is what the law had prescribed, and this is the Pharisees and scribes working it out to say, all right, you know, this is how we're going to live our life. <clears throat> and so here she comes, 
and there's a trap that they're setting. Jesus is known as one who shows mercy, and he's being told as one and described as one who is representing God. Well, God has given the law, and the law says this. The law says that there should be stoning here. So if he says, oh, no, no, you, you shouldn't stone her, then he's disagreeing with Moses, and therefore he's the lawless one, and they would punish him. They, they, he would be shown as being dishonored in that culture. And, and if he's dishonored, then like we said earlier, he's, he's a nobody. They're going to forget about him. They're not going to allow him, like, this is it. Jesus is ruined. If, on the other hand, he comes in and he upholds the law and says, yeah, the woman should be stoned, then he's also validating the system that's in place. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the idea of mercy that maybe was like, beginning to percolate out throughout culture, you know, that God is merciful, you know, and, and, and he really is Lord of the Sabbath, and there's this idea of rest, and, and, and his kingdom is coming. That all goes away as well in this. You know, and, and so he's caught in a trap, seemingly. They bring him forward, and, and there's this, this, this woman in the middle that they're going to make her stand, you know, and, and so who knows what kind of shape she's in, you know, because she's been obviously caught because you have to have two witnesses catching in the act. She's been caught. Who knows what state she's in? And they're making her stand in the middle of, of everybody. And so, again, Jesus is teaching. There's a crowd around. And then this other hostile, vitriolic, you know, honor guy, testosterone crowd coming in saying, hey, this is the law. What are you going to do about it? So I just want to kind of like heighten it up even more. All right? So... I just want you guys to picture the amount of emotion that was, first of all, in the, the, the group of the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the most powerful religious leaders in the land. They carried sway with all the people. They were seen as the best, right? They thought that they were the best anyway. They had trumpets, and they had people following them. They would pray what they wanted, and, and they, would, they would rule the land. They had the power. And, and so think of the most powerful people in our land that are the most maybe like potentially self-righteous as well. They, they had heads, they, they really thought they were the best, and they were being threatened. What do people in power do when they're being threatened? What do the narcissists among us do when they're being threatened? They, they get angry. They, they, they fight. They, they begin to argue. They're demean. They, they, they get angry. They, they get hostile. And this hostility, what was in their eyes, was bulging out. It, it was, in the end, going to be what murders Jesus. So that's part of the spirit or the emotions that are in this temple on that end. Elizabeth and I, several years ago, we went to Jerusalem, we went to Israel, and, and walked around that land where Jesus and the patriarchs had walked. And we went to the temple ground. And the temple ground now has a mosque in it, and it has uh, an area where you know, Muslims go to gather and sit and, and learn and be taught by the imams and have discourse and that kind of thing. And, uh, and then there's all these tour groups that are there that are watching where Solomon's temple was and now the, the mosque is and, and reading about in their scriptures what, what that place has always meant throughout history. Um, it, it's the same place where Isaac was sacrificed. You know, it was the same place um, where... Uh, you know, I just lost my mind. Uh, it's a very important place. <laughs> Mount Moriah. So oh, it was the place where uh, Abraham met uh, Melchizedek. Um, and so it, it, and throughout history, it's, it's the mountain. It's Mount Zion. 
And so also you have these Jews that come in, and they're not allowed there by Jewish custom because to do so would make them unclean because it's not yet uh, sanctified. It's not yet made holy until they find their red heifer and sacrifice and all that stuff. Um, yet they want to get there. So on the day that we're there, you know, there's guards walking around with machine guns, and it's a very tense place. These Jewish uh, students, uh, protest students, they break through the line, and they run up to where they believe the, the Temple of Solomon used to be, and they begin to shout, our God is great, our God is good, our God is great, our God is good in Hebrew. And all of a sudden, all these armed men start running over with machine guns, and, and like the air becomes electric, and it's this hostile play because they're arguing, they're yelling, and, and the Muslims are running into, to one another, and, and we were like, to the tour guide, are we going to be okay? Because rockets are literally flying into Gaza at that time, and also people are being murdered just down the street in Jerusalem because of the conflicts that are going on. So it was a pretty intense place. And so that's just an idea, but that I don't think fully conveys all the hostility that was going on when these Pharisees bring this woman up. Again, the whole power system potentially of history of, of, of Israel is being challenged here. At the same time, there's the crowd that's there. So there, there's the anger of the power of the crowd of the, the Pharisees, but then there's the crowd itself that's there that's wondering, you know, hey, what's Jesus going to do? And so maybe there's, taking, there's some that are taking the side of justice, like stone her legitimately. You know, like imagine if, you know, in, in, in our Christian world, we're all kind, we're all nice, but maybe the, the person that's writing all the full-term abortion legislation, legislation comes to our church and we, we bring them and drag them in front of this church. Are, are we going to be calm and peaceful? Or there might be some of us that, are just as angry and, 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 and upset that there's could be this person that wants to kill innocent life. We, we have to understand that there's some legitimate reasons why people in this case are, are wanting, according to the law anyway, their idea of justice. And so there are people that are there that are, kill, kill, kill. And then there are others that are going, whoa, mercy, whoa. And, and, and it's a tense moment because this woman might die. And, and maybe they don't want their kids to see it, or who knows? And then there's the woman. Let's not forget about the woman who's there. You know, she's humiliated. She's been totally disgraced now in front of all of Jerusalem. You know, she has been humiliated. She's been dragged out of the bedsheets. Who knows what she's wearing? Made to stand in the middle of this crowd. Jesus, just imagine who Jesus is in this. He's teaching and he sees it all happen. He, he hears the, the anger. I mean, imagine during, you know, the, the, the George Floyd and, and you know, the, the, all that happened this last year. Imagine that type of environment. You know, imagine being on the streets when that's happening. Like, that's happening here in the temple right now. That's what's going on. That, that type of just, like, absolute anger is there. So, Jesus, pay attention to who you are and who Jesus is in this. We're going to worship Jesus. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. So it says that he was sitting and teaching, and then, and then this crowd of angry guys, and then the crowd at large comes over, and, and they're beginning to have just this, this raucous discussion, that this raucous shouting and yelling, and, and what's going to happen? And then, you know, he's not neglecting to look at the woman, I'm sure. And so he's seeing her just devastated, her fear that's there. And it says that he just looks down and just starts drawing in the dirt. If you're in that position, 
And you have, <laughs> you, you have a sense of responsibility, right? You're, you're God himself. You are, you are representing God to whole of humanity throughout all of history. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus is restoring the priesthood of all believers. So imagine if you were him. And here is this situation that was presented to, to you in this, to, to represent God, you know, on the pivotal point of the law and humanity and how it affects us and our sin. And so I, I don't know, I, I would melt. <laughs> it would be hard not for me to, you know, just to be overwhelmed in the moment. You know, who knows what I would experience? You know, um, I would live stream some of the stuff that was happening in Charlotte last year uh, as I was watching some of the, the street violence that was going on. And I, I just, I, as a feeler, I would feel the emotion of it. And it was, it was hard to sleep for hours after that uh, because of just the amount of emotion that was happening throughout all those scenes. And, and for all of us that have any degree of empathy, and we all do, um, that, that affects us, and it, and it affected everybody last year, and it affects us still to this day. And when we see these images and we participate in life and all, and we see these emotions that are out there, it affects us. And, and it's hard not to react to it. Jesus doesn't react to it. And, and this is the most astonishing thing that I, I, I can imagine. Like, he, he does not react. Here come all these folks. There's a crowd demanding him as representing God himself. And he stops what he's doing and just starts to doodle in the dirt. <laughs> Look at this, you know? That was a practice, you know, there was one scholar that was reading about this. Because everyone supposed, like, what, what's, he, what's he writing in the dirt? If it was important for us to know what he was writing in the dirt, it would have been written for us to know. <laughs> That's not the point. That, that's not the point. This is the point. <laughs> They're standing. She's standing. He's sitting. Let me put that. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, so, why, do, why do you have to persist in questioning somebody? Because they're not paying attention to you. <laughs> and so, you know, <clears throat> here are these Pharisees that they, their honor is on the line now. They, they have brought, they have brought the, you know, the most serious charge. Their, their honor is on the line. They're going to rise and fall based on this. You know, their, their identity, their whole culture. I mean, I'm not trying to, like, blow it up too much. This is what's going on, guys. What's on the line here, uh, the amount of emotional energy that they were projecting onto Jesus was unimaginable. I don't imagine the devil's in there somewhere, right? And then there's the crowd. Again, like, you know, maybe some of them are looking at the woman and they're having compassion, Maybe they, they can't stand the thought of this, this woman dying, no matter what she's done. And, and maybe they're wondering, gosh, you know, like, who could do such a thing? Like, I, I don't want to have to pick up a stone. I don't want to have to do this. And, and they're, they're, they're growing, you know, you know concerned, and, and they're growing, you know, in, in that case, just, you know, full of, like, sorrow. 
at, at just the, this reality of the, the brokenness of our culture. Because these moments are starting to last a little bit longer, and they're recognizing that here in this scene is the trial that we might experience the death of a woman here. This is a, this is a gruesome, this is a brutal culture. This is a brutal scene that we're seeing right now. And, and so they're also weighing in on this. Gosh. And then there's the woman that's standing there. And I, I can't imagine what her eyes would look like. You know, looking at Jesus, you know, her life hangs in his hands. What, what's he going to do? Jesus, in a moment, affirms the right to stone her. In, in this passage I'm about to read, Jesus affirms the right of this culture to stone her for what she's done. She knows that her very life now hangs in the balance. You know, but even if she lives, is it a life that she wants to go back to? So there, there she is. She's standing in the middle of it. And, you know, there, there's, there's dirt on her hands, so to speak. And Jesus is there putting dirt on his hands. And he's riding in, in the dirt. He's doodling. <clears throat> and then the persistent question him. And I can just imagine, who knows how long they persisted in questioning him. But through it all, Jesus is just do-do-do, do-do-do. And then he stands. And we know what he says. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down. And just continue drawing again. He is, this is incredible, he is empowering culture. He is giving them the choice and he's revealing their hearts. He, he is shifting culture from the law without ever diminishing the law to the spirit, which is available to all people and always has been, to help them to see their own hearts and to judge themselves with the law based on the revelation of the spirit now. He is never discounting the law. He says, you have the right to do so. He who has the first sin he who is without sin cast the first stone. And every guy there in the next few minutes acknowledges that they have no right to do what they're doing based on their own sinfulness. The, their own neglect of the law in some ways. Uh, you know, the, the Pharisees were known at that time um, of being quite adulterous themselves. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. Jesus, again, he affirms the law, but he, he asks them, judge yourself first. And, and, and in today's world, I, I can't think of a more apt wisdom for all of us than look at yourself first before you look at anyone else and cast a stone at them. 
His emotional wherewithal, uh, I was talking about this with our pastors a few weeks ago, that same passage, is, is astonishing to me, and it calls me to worship. And this is who you are made to be. It's called self-differentiation in the psychological world. His ability to differentiate himself and his emotions from those that were around him and give an answer that is based in shalom and integrated peace and wholeness is how he was able to deliver this wisdom into this world. You and I are made to be differentiated, holy. There's another word for saying the same thing, just like Jesus is. Jesus walked as a new Adam, as representing God who is holy, who is self-differentiated from all of us, unique, one with us, and yet also at the same time different. You and I and all of us are made to be able to stand apart from the emotions that rage all around us and remain in a place of calm, collected, doodling peace, (laughs) winsomeness, not shirking the responsibility that's there because he didn't, but to be able to help realign culture, to help shift the viewpoint of all those that are around us, to give people another option, to take people out of their circumstances, to help them to see that there are emotions different than those that they have to experience, and to not be dependent upon them, no matter who it is that's around you. You're not a product of your environment, if I could say it like that. You don't have to be enmeshed or codependent upon those who are around you. And here Jesus is, in this moment, and he didn't stop there. Uh, you know, we, we know, it's been said many times, when, you know, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. The older men had sense enough to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I know myself well enough. Um, if you're anything like me, uh, when you're younger, um, yeah, you may have a different idea. <laughs> you, you may think, I'm pretty good. <laughs> I've got this figured out. And then you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and you really think it, right? Only he was left. And so, you know, the the Pharisees, they they walk away. And then I I can't imagine what the crowds would have thought and considered. I mean, like, however you react, you know, imagine that on the crowd. I mean, it... It, it, it would have, it would have, you know, I, I don't know what I've done. I just would have been overcome by emotion, you know, at, at it. But there's still the woman that's there, <clears throat> and he looks to her, and again she's standing there in some state, you know, uh, who knows? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. She answered. And here's here's the big deal. Um, our role as priests is to bring order and beauty out of chaos, to restore all of creation and all the cosmos. We're starting now on earth, and we're going to eventually spread to the whole universe in time. Those that are outside of it, for whatever reason, our job is to go and get them. Go outside the temple. Go, go and go, go get them. Go restore them. That, that's your and I's mission. When we are doing that, we're coming fully alive. And so Jesus, as the perfect priest, he, he gives, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge that he exists within the pharisaical world. You know, the, the Pharisees are trying to create a, a verdict. They're trying to create a judgment based on the law. You know, and, and they're wanting Jesus to be like a Pharisee or like a rabbi or like a religious leader. Hey, you, you make the declaration. You, you say the law. What, what does it say? You give your opinion. And he empowers him. He says, well, you know, if it's, you know, uh, uh, if it's on uh, whoever had the first sin, uh, stone the woman. I just did that bad. Uh, <laughs> 
But, but he empowers them. He says, you make the decision. And he, he puts it back. You're the religious leaders. You guys, you guys come up with this. And I, I, I find that amazing. Um, and then they walk away, and they leave the woman behind. They, they had just shamed this woman, brought her out there. You know, they didn't, they didn't condemn her. They didn't stone her, obviously. But then they did nothing with her after that. They just left her there. Like, God, the injustice of it makes me so angry. This hurts, you know. And so Jesus, again, affirming their right to stone the woman. So he affirms that what she did was sin, what she did was wrong. But now she's left without culture. She's left outside forever. She's been forever dishonored. He comes to her and says, neither do I condemn you. So then he is now acting like the priest that was always meant to be there. He wasn't going to agree with this kangaroo court and get involved with that. He was going to emotionally steady himself, wait till all that stuff cleared away. And then he entered in and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin, go and from now on, go and from now on, go and from now on, uh, sin no more. There in verse uh, 11. And so what he did in that, neither do I condemn you, as, as what everyone was looking to. Now, this is the new Moses. This is the new Adam. This is the new representative. Neither do I condemn you means welcome back into culture. Welcome back to honor. Welcome back to your people. Neither do I condemn you. If I don't condemn you, then no one has the right to condemn you either. If I don't condemn you, who is the perfect representation of God, who's a walking temple of the presence of God, neither do I condemn you. It means to the crowd that's around there, neither do you condemn her. Hey, these guys, look at what they've done. I mean, it, it was a humiliating defeat for religious law. And hey, the law, we are to always teach the law. Always. We are never to stop teaching the law because it does represent the, the perfect moral character of God. But we are no longer righteous because of it. We are able to represent it. We're able to live through it because of Jesus Christ. And we don't bring condemnation now through it. The, the law was meant to condemn and to kill. But now Jesus Christ through the Spirit brings life. Look at how he does it. Neither do I condemn you. And he goes to the woman. He restores her. I, I would imagine that there must have been those in the crowd who would have been filled with compassion that upon hearing these things and seeing what had happened would have rushed upon her to cover her and, 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 and bring her back. <clears throat> But, they, but maybe moments beforehand, they were wondering, are we going to be rushing to, to cleanse the blood of her off of the street from her stoning? Who knows? It was that tense of a moment, and now they can rush in with compassion. This is what Jesus had done in this moment. And what I want to highlight amongst all these things is Jesus' ability, again, to, to, stay, to, to stay separate from this. And guys, this is, this is so difficult to do. I, I, I can't tell you how difficult it is. Like, when, when, I, when I see people's stories, like, imagine Jesus. Jesus in this, he, he, he doesn't, like, hold her and embrace her in a, in a way that, that's like, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. He, you know, he, he doesn't go there. He actually doesn't over-empathize uh, with her. There, there is a sin, I'm going to say it like this, of over-empathy, yeah. of identifying too much yeah. with people's pains. And if I'm being honest, I think what's happened the last couple of years in culture at large is that we have become so enmeshed in one another's pain that we've lost ourselves. That's right. yeah. And that, that's no criticism. 
That's, that's simply the state of things. We, 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 have, we have ceased to become a separate holy people and have said, well, your pain is my pain now. No, no. Jesus didn't do that here. He kept himself separate. He gave her, he empowered her. You're, you're now welcome back in the culture. Don't sin any longer. You, you, are, you are welcome back here. But he didn't condone what she did. You know, he didn't try to, you know, uh, console the, the parts that he shouldn't need to console. And so he remained in a place of self-differentiation. For all of us that experience these type of moments where, you know, you, you have a friend or you have a child or you have a loved one that is, that is needing from you something, you know, come to me. You're like, you're like, you know, I, I need your answer. How, how easy is it for us to just be like, yeah, like, let me help you. Like, what do you need? What do you need? And I just want to caution that that's not wisdom always that's acting on behalf of another person. It's, it's wise in your own way to go and doodle in the dirt. You know, we uh, have premarital counseling or marriage counseling here, and one of the techniques we use is calling a timeout. Have marriage couples, you guys do timeouts? You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, where, where you're having those moments where uh, your, your, your emotions are not like Jesus's, and, and, <laughs> and there's other things that are beginning to come out, and there's, there's the, the unredeemed part of you that your spouse and your spouse alone sees. <laughs> your friend or your friend, you know, whoever's close to you. And, uh, and you know, you, you, there's the anger, and, and it's about to get really, really, really bad. <clears throat> and, and you guys know what I mean by that. Uh, wisdom says, call a timeout. You know, collect yourself. Uh, go and find a sandbox and begin... <laughs> to doodle in there some patterns until you are completely in the playground and having a good time and enjoying all of God who is. We begin to practice the presence of God at all times. And as we do so more and more, as, as the temple within us becomes realized, then our emotions become self-differentiated. As we begin to worship God and keep that worship on at all times, as, as, we, as we continue to practice, we continue to pray ceaselessly, our emotions become like his. And no matter where we go, we become the ones that are helping people have a different option. And it's, it's incumbent upon you and I, who are now representers of Jesus as the temples of the living God everywhere we go, to reveal this everywhere we go. Uh, you know, it, Everyone around us is an example of God to some degree, you know, whether or not they know it or not. And so uh, it's often easy to look at other people's reaction and say, well, I like that. I'm going to do what that person's doing. And these last years of public discourse in our politics have become bombastic and they've become accusatory. And hey, if you're going to go there, I'm going to go here. Oh, you're going to go there. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. And it just ratchets up more and more. And then as Christians, and this is just a general commentary, large portions of us are saying, yeah, yeah, you say that. We're not going to get involved as much, but I want to tell you how wrong you are. I, I, I love that that, that 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 person is shaming you publicly. I love that that person's calling you out. I love how angry my leader is towards you because I'm angry towards you as well. Yep. Abraham Lincoln, 1860. <laughs> Uh, was in the crossroads of a, of, of a time in their country's history of tremendous turmoil, more than we, what we're experiencing now. We are experiencing a tremendously tense time. It's not yet as tense as it was in 1859, 1860. And before he was 
uh, on the track to being president, before he had put in his name, he had turned to his fellow Republicans, and he had treated them saying, let us do nothing through passion and ill temper. Passion throughout history as a, as a terminology in English has always been considered a negative thing. It's something that's coming out of like a, you know, the, the sinful part of ourselves. Uh, let us do nothing through passion and ill temper. Let us calmly consider their demands and yield to them if in our deliberate view of our duty we possibly can, essentially in affirming them. Let us have faith that right makes right, and in that faith let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. Right makes right. So as, as we represent God by doing right, it shows other people what right looks like. And what Abraham Lincoln was recognizing at the time is that to, to speak calmly in public discourse, to deliberate, you know, deliberate over what someone's saying and take it seriously and to agree with it to the extent that we can, that's healthy and whole and healing. And he helped bridge so much division at that time, even after the fact, you know, it was, was so much of what he was about. In our days today as Christians, uh, as followers of Jesus, look at this example of him and, and know that as soon as you begin to feel emotion from somewhere else besides you, pause, uh, train yourself, discipline yourself so that when you begin to feel any sense of like passion coming up that's coming from someone else, let that be a stop. Like, hold on a second. We, we used to do this thing in counseling where we'd tell someone to grab a thumb. You know, if, if you're starting to feel your, your, your blood rise, grab your thumb and then, and then begin to think, am I angry? Am I tired? Am I sleepy? What is it? We do these things in counseling as tricks to help doodle in the dirt, you know, to help get into our prefrontal cortex, to, to help separate into our volitional control center and self-differentiate so that we can become calm, so we can access, you know, our, our, our higher levels of thinking. We, as Christians, we have access to heaven itself. And so we can grab a thumb, you know, whatever it is that, that it's helpful for you. As soon as you begin to feel too much emotion, stop what you're doing. Do it on the dirt, whatever it takes. Pause. Ask for wisdom. You don't have to respond immediately to someone else and their, their, their taunts, their entanglements. And as you look at the leaders that are out there in culture, beware. Beware. Beware of those who are bombastically heightening, shouting, creating more emotional stirring, because that is manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you plainly, those honor-bound people that were in this culture, the, the Pharisees, they would intimidate through their, through their, their vitriol, their, their anger, their, their strength. They would get the crowds riled up, as they did with, in the end with um, oh, Pontius Pilate. They intimidated him through the crowds to end up crucifying Jesus. We are not to be intimidated. We are not to be bullied. We represent the shalom, the peace, the calm, the deliberateness, the thoughtfulness of God everywhere we go, creating beauty out of ashes and, and turmoil everywhere we go. That's who you're made to be. When you look at Jesus, worship him for this. You know, if you find yourself emotionally entangled a lot, worship Jesus as being one who's not emotionally entangled a lot, and you'll find more and more that you create some margin in your life and distance. But be intentional about it as well. How's that sound? Is that good? All right. Well, let me pray, and we'll finish up.
Father, you have always been at rest. And you've given us permission to enter into that rest. And today the offer is extended to everyone who is listening to this to enter into the rest of God. He has completed all of your works. He has fulfilled all all requirements of the law and of righteousness so that you are right with him. If you don't believe that you're right with him, tell him that. And ask that, you would make, that he would make you right through your faith that Jesus has made you right. If you doubt at all that Jesus can make you right, Look at his resurrection. The man rose from the dead. And he says that you are clean and innocent, that you are pure, that you are restored, that you are part of culture, God's culture and society, and you will be forever. It'll never be taken from you. No one can pluck you out of the hand of God. And so for all of you that are here, that are listening to this, that may in some ways know that or believe that you don't have that rest, that righteousness, that right place with God, Jesus is here right now to give it to you. He is worth your worship and adoration. That which you give to him of your life, he will lift you up and give you of his life. He will give you peace and calm. He will give you wholeness. He will give you laughter that comes from a place that has no threat so you can relax and enjoy the laughter without threat of it leaving you. Father, you are always calm and meek and gentle of heart. And many of us, Lord, have done things or thought things that are terrible, horrible to consider. And yet you have forgotten them as you have forgiven them. So I pray right now that you would restore that innocence and that rest. And as we look at Jesus and how he treated the crowds and the woman, how he understood the toxicity of his time, I pray for that same grace in all of us. I pray that any way that we've looked to leaders to represent our anger, that you would forgive us. I pray that in any way that we've looked to our leaders or our culture at large to bring condemnation, to throw stones. I ask that you would forgive us. Would I find myself personally wanting or at least finding a desire within me for those same things? And I, I run from that. I flee from that. I, I cast that as far away from me as possible. And I ask that your power that you would keep me and all of us, Lord, away from those things. And instead bring gentleness and humility, and weakness. For, Lord, that which I'm asking would make us look foolish and weak in our world's eyes. How could we possibly stand up in a culture that defends itself through power and weapons, possibly enter into weakness and humility 
and not be swallowed up by violence. And yet, Lord, that's exactly where you would have us to stand. And so, Father, I pray right now through our meekness and gentleness that even should the violence surround us and take our lives, (laughs) we know that, Lord, our lives can never be taken from us. And so, Lord, let us stand with joy, believing, Lord, that in so doing, we represent Jesus and who you are to the world. And so, Lord, I'm also asking for your temple to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Your temple, which is in Jesus now, to be in us now. And all other competing idols crumble and fall away. We love you, Daddy. We thank you that you have given us this birthright and the power of your spirit to overcome all obstacles. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Gate Charlotte's podcast. Consider subscribing so you don't miss a message. We're sending this to someone who might need encouragement today. Thanks for joining us.